was the transition. Acts chapter 1, the book of Acts is divided into Acts 1 to 7, 8 to 12, and 13 to 28. And uh, that's based on Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You should be witnesses unto me, uh, both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. So in Acts 1 to 7, we have the witness in Jerusalem. In Acts 8 to 12, we have the witness in Judea and Samaria. And in Acts uh, 13 to 28, we have the witness to the uttermost parts of the earth. You notice, by the way, we touched it, I guess, when we were back yonder in October. You notice that Acts 1.8 says, You shall be witnesses uh, unto me, both in Judea and in Samaria, and in, uh, both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. That's interesting, isn't it? If we would have written that, how would we have written it? Pardon? How would we have written it? We had written it, we had written it, you should be witnesses unto me either in Memphis or in Knoxville or in Washington or the uttermost parts here. But in right of either or, both and, you are to be a witness both in Memphis and in South India. How can you be a witness both in uh, Memphis and in South India? Well, uh, let me say a very practical way, by witnessing here and then by supporting our Indian scholarship. <laughs> but uh, seriously, we're to be witnesses, see, by personally here in Memphis and by substitutionally, substitutionally overseas, by supporting, praying for missions. Now, in Acts 1 to 7, witness in Jerusalem, about three years, four years. Acts 8 to 12, the witness in Judea and Samaria, and then Acts 13 to 28, witness in, uh, in uttermost parts of the earth. Now, Acts 8, 1 to 4, we have the scattering of the church. Is that correct? We have about six things in Acts 8 to 12. First of all, in Acts chapter 8, 1 to 4, we have the scattering of the church into Judea and Samaria. Is that correct from the outline? Right. All right, now point two. What is major point two in these five chapters? The ministry of Philip. The ministry of Philip the layman. The ministry of Philip the deacon. Acts 8, verses 5 through 40. Now, the three places where uh, Philip witnesses, and we touched on this just a bit last time, uh, Here's, um, here is, uh, let's say, the coast of uh, Palestine. Now, this is a, the sake of purposes, this is expanded. Let's say this is the Sea of Galilee, and here's the Dead Sea. Now, that's, that's expanded. And up here is Damascus, and here is Jerusalem, and here is Samaria. And down here is Gaza, and here is, uh, is uh, Ashkelon, and up here is uh, Caesarea. And so Philip goes up to Samaria from Jerusalem and number one witnesses here in, um, in Samaria. That's Acts in Samaria. That's Acts 8, 5 to 25. Then secondly, somewhere down on the road from Jerusalem to Gaza, and this is Gaza right here, we speak today of the Gaza Strip. This is Gaza, right down in the southwest part of Palestine. Somewhere on the road, perhaps right about here, 
the Spirit of God directs Philip and he intercepts the Ethiopian eunuch. And we have that incident recorded in Acts 26 to 39. And then third, the last place, Philip goes down to Gaza and then up to Ashkelon, which is the ancient Ashdod, and then up to Caesarea, and he evangelizes this seacoast area, and that's chapter Acts 8.40. So we have the witness of Philip in three places, 5 to 25 in Samaria, 26 to 39, on the way in the desert, on the way down from Jerusalem down to Gaza, then Acts 8.40 on the seacoast. What does your Bible say in Acts chapter 8, verse 40? Acts chapter 8, verse 40. Somebody read it. What does it say? Acts 8, 40, the Bible. From the preaching minister from the Azotus to Thessalonica. All right, now what does it say in the Bible now? Acts 8, 40 in the Bible. Somebody read it. But Philip was found at Azotus, and passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Thessalonica. All right, now here's Azotus uh, right here. I could ask Azotus right here. Here's Azotus right there. And he probably went down to Gaza. And then, uh, you remember Samson, some of uh, Samson's exploits were along here. And he went from Gaza up to Azotus, evangelized Azotus, and all the way up to Caesarea, which is the Miami of the Roman governors. They lived down at, uh, they lived down at Caesarea, the seaport. And he evangelized all of this area. So, three areas of Philip's ministry. One in Samaria, one in... Uh, one on the desert, one in the desert, when God took him out of a red-hot revival, preaching to hundreds, thousands, down to witness to a man on the way to the desert. That's Acts 8, 26 to 39. Then last of all, Acts chapter 8, verse 40, the witness on the seacoast. Now we want to look at one more thing in Acts chapter 8. Well, let's go ahead and turn it off. Now this morning we want to study Acts chapter 8, verses 26 to 40. In Acts chapter 8, we have the witness of Philip in three places. First, Acts 8, verses 5 to 25, the witness of Philip in Samaria. Secondly, Acts chapter 8, 26 to 39, the witness of Philip to the Ethiopian eunuch on the way from Jerusalem to Gaza. Then Acts chapter 8, verse 40, the witness of Philip on the Palestinian coast. Now we took up last time the first one, the witness of Philip to Samaria. And I want to look at one, uh, one more point on that section which troubles some people. And then we will pass on. And when we get through after about 10 minutes, it will probably still trouble you. <laughs> but there are three questions that we need to ask when we come to Acts 8, 5 to 25. Well, I wouldn't say that we need to ask them, but I would say uh, that they are asked. Three questions. I want to look at one of them. First question is this. Uh, in what capacity, in what capacity, did Philip and John go down after Phil, uh, Peter and John go down to uh, Samaria after Philip had evangelized the Samaritans? Well, my opinion is that it was simply in as an observant capacity. That uh, here the gospel had been preached to Samaria, news got back to Jerusalem, so God sent the apostles down there to look at it. 
Now, the, another question is, was uh, Simon the sorcerer a truly saved man? Well, there are arguments on both sides of that. I don't believe that he was, but there are arguments on both sides. Now, the third question is this, and I hope you listen. Why did the Lord God uh, give to the Samaritans the Holy Spirit in an unusual way in Acts 8? 25 to 40. There are Acts 8, 5 to 25. Take your Bible, please, and look with me in that section. Acts chapter 8. The Samaritans received the Holy Spirit in an unusual way. Now, the question is, is this the pattern for us today? There's some groups who say it is the pattern. They say that the reception of the Holy Spirit, especially the baptism of the Holy Spirit, is a second work of grace that takes place after conversion. Now look at Acts chapter 8. And uh, you read in Acts uh, chapter 8, verse 12, But when the Samaritans believed Philip, uh, Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Now these people were truly saved. They were Christians. Philip recognizes that, and he baptizes them. Later on, Peter and John go down to Samaria, and they are convinced that God has worked the great work of grace in their hearts and souls. So these people were saved. Now, uh, after this, uh, we read verse 14. Now when the apostles who were in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them, unto the Samaritans, Peter and John, who, when they were come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet, the Holy Spirit was fallen upon none of these Samaritan believers. Only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. They laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Ghost. They received the Holy Spirit. Now, why does God act in an unusual way here? There's no other case in the book of Acts that follows this pattern. The normal <clears throat> procedure in the book of Acts is that the man receives Jesus Christ the Savior. When he receives Christ the Savior, at that hour he receives the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is not a second word of grace. And the classic passage on that is Acts chapter 11. Now I want to ask you to turn over there because this is a critical passage in, 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 uh, that deals with this. Acts chapter 11. In Acts chapter 10, God directs Peter to go to Caesarea uh, at the place that Philip goes previously, and God directs Peter to preach to Cornelius. In Acts chapter 10, Cornelius is saved. <laughs> Now, Cornelius is a Gentile, and after he's saved, Peter sits down and eats with him, and that was taboo among the Jews. Now, it's all right for Peter to preach the gospel, but not to fellowship with him socially, not to sit down and eat with him. He did that. So when Peter got back to Jerusalem, and he looked around for every excuse not to go back there, because he knew Peter did, that when he got back, he'd be called on the carpet by the Jewish Christians. 
He was called on the part of later one, Galatians chapter 2, for doing exactly the same thing. And Paul says, Peter withdrew himself, would sit down and eat with Christian Gentiles. After the brethren came down from Jerusalem and said, How come, Peter, you eat with those Gentiles? You're a circumcised Jew. You're not, you're not supposed to be doing that. And as Paul says in Galatians 2, Barnabas and Peter were carried away with that dissimulation, whatever that is. I read the Bible for 20 years without wondering what is that dissimulation. See, I thought maybe that was a disease. <laughs> God, that simply means, now you know, I can see it on your face. <laughs> that word means hypocrisy. Barnabas, Peter were carried, uh, were, were carried away in that hypocrisy. He was cruel himself. Well, when he got back, Susan, he's called the carpet. And uh, Peter was asked, how come you sat down and fellowship with, with Gentiles, uncircumcised Gentiles? That's taboo. And Peter said, well, God accepted this. How could I not accept it? And then he describes what happened. He said, I got down there and I began to preach. Peter was a frustrated preacher. He got about five minutes of his sermon out, and the, and the Holy Spirit stopped him, and the men were saved right then, and they received the Holy Spirit right then, and they spoke in a foreign language, in tongues, in a foreign language. And Peter said, why, if these men have this, uh, speak in a foreign language, speak in tongues, then they're saved. They received the Holy Spirit. And if they receive the Holy Spirit, they are saved. And if they're saved, two things. One, I can fellowship with them. Two, they can be baptized. And they were baptized. And I asked some of my friends, supposedly Cornelius had suffered a heart attack before he got into the baptismal waters. Would he have gone to heaven? Yes. Yes, he would have. Now, Peter recounts that, and he says in Acts chapter 11, 15, 16, and 17, these words. Look at Acts 11, 15. And Peter says, verse 15, uh, verse 14, shall tell thee words whereby thou and all thy house shall be saved. Then says Peter, as I began to speak, I only got through the first point of my sermon. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on Cornelius and his household as on, as, as on us at the beginning, Pentecost. How did he know it? Because they spoke in tongues. And the Holy Spirit fell on them as in the, at the beginning. Then remembered I the word of the Lord, how that he said, John, is he baptized with water, but you shall receive, uh, you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. For as much then as God gave them the like gift. Now what is the like gift? The baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now you're going to have to listen here. This is important. What is the like gift? The like gift is explained in verse 14, verse 16. You should be baptized with the Holy Spirit. For as much then as God gave them the like gift. What is the like gift? the baptism with the Holy Spirit. I just leave it that way. 
Lord's birth then is God gave him the like gift as he did unto us who believed on the Lord Jesus and carried at an altar. Is that what it says? You read, you were in Acts 11? All right. What does it say they did to receive the like gift, the baptism? What, they, what was the one thing they did? Believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's all they did. That's the normal pattern. What is the normal pattern in the New Testament? The normal pattern in the New Testament after Pentecost is that a man believes on the Lord Jesus Christ as his Savior. When he believes on Christ the Savior, that moment he receives the gift of the Holy Spirit, or to put it more explicitly, that moment he receives the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit, is not a second work of grace. That takes place in the hour of conversion. Did you feel it? No. I didn't know it for 10 years after I was saved. But it took place. See, God doesn't save me according to my knowledge. He saves me according to my confidence in Christ. And there are a lot of things that happen in my salvation that I didn't learn a lot later on. And there'll be a lot of things that I still don't know about my salvation. Won't learn about it until I get to heaven. But it's a place. It's a fact. In the, what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? What is it? Well, I came to broadcast Thursday, and I said I'm going to answer that question. <laughs> I won't answer it. That'll be on about two weeks from now. But the baptism of the Holy Spirit is simply, now you're listening, is what I like to call a spiritual transplant. The Baptist the Holy Spirit is a spiritual transplant. I come from Southern California. Years ago, many, many years ago, and I suppose they still do, they would take a branch right where it connected to the trunk, they would make an incision, take a branch out of one tree, make an incision in another, and insert it. So the sap, the life of the second tree would flow into the branch of the first tree. Uh, uh, and today we have transplants. We take a part, uh, uh, a kidney or something, and transplant from one to another. And the life of the second person flows into the organ of the first man. Now, when I was saved, I was taken out of the old Adam. God performed a spiritual transplant. He took me out of the old Adam, and he joined me to Christ. And that spiritual surgical operation, that spiritual transplant, is called the baptism with the Holy Spirit. The baptism is not, the Holy Spirit is not an experience. Now, you know it's not water baptism. I don't need to say that. It's not water baptism. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, which takes place in the hour of the moment of conversion, is that spiritual surgical operation of the Holy Spirit, that spiritual transplant, by which the Holy Spirit takes me out of the first Adam and unites me to the last Adam. For as an Adam all die, even so, in Christ shall all be made alive. 
2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if any man be where? In Christ. In Christ. Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. How did you get in Christ? That, in a sense, is the sum and substance of Paul's theology. How does a man get in Christ? Well, his part by faith. On his part, by trusting Christ. But on God's part, by a spiritual transplant. And that spiritual transplant is called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. In the hour of conversion, God gives to me the Holy Spirit, joins me to Christ. Now, the question is, why didn't God do that with the Samaritans? Why did God break the pattern, so to speak, and uh, wait until Peter and John came down, laid their hands on them, and then they received the Holy Spirit? Well, the Bible doesn't, as a matter of fact, doesn't explain it, doesn't give it. If God wishes to operate that way, then he's sovereign, he can. But I would suggest it's for this reason, and I hope you listen, and I hope I cover it in about five minutes. Uh, in the days of Paul and Peter and James and Christ, there were essentially two um, religious bodies that were based on the Old Testament. One was the, by means of the term, the religion of the Jews. The other was the religion of the Samaritans. But both of them based their religion on the Old Testament. The Samaritans accepted the Pentateuch. The Jews, of course, accepted all the uh, Old Testament. Now you know how the Samaritans came into existence. When uh, the uh, captivity of the North, ten northern tribes took place in 721 B.C., uh, the, ten, the people from the ten northern tribes were taken by Assyria out of northern Palestine and resettled in other areas. Then the Assyrians took the Gentiles from these places, brought them down and put them in northern Palestine, and these Gentiles and Jews intermarried, and they were called Samaritans. And I recall about 30 years ago, I haven't checked up since then, that there were about 125 Samaritans still living in that part of Palestine. They were half-free. They were despised by the Gentiles, and they were hated by the Jews. You remember what the Samaritan woman said to Jesus? The Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. They were despised. Why, a Jew would go down the Jordan Valley to avoid going to Samaria to get to northern Palestine. They were despised. And uh, when the Jews came back after the Babylonian captivity, in 535, came down, came up, really, went south and was up, came up to Jerusalem and uh, said to Ezra, said to the man who was rebuilding, we want to help you rebuild the temple. And we want to help you rebuild the wall. Nehemiah. Nehemiah said, no. 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 So the Samaritans flooded back to Samaria, and they built their own temple on Mount Gerizim. And they had their own temple. And you had two 
exceedingly approved religions operate in Palestine. Now, is that condition going to continue in New Testament times? Will there be two centers? Will there be two bodies of Christ or only one? One or two? Just one. Well, how did God visibly, outwardly uh, indicate this and authenticate it? By what he led them to do in Acts chapter 8. The Samaritans, did God receive the Holy Spirit, and that was authenticated then by speaking in tongues. The Samaritans did not receive the Holy Spirit until Peter and John came on down to Samaria, laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now that's not the normal procedure, but it was then. What did that do? That did two things. Are you listening? And this is why it was done, I believe. Unusual. Only one time. But for a good reason. Number one, that taught two lessons. It taught a lesson to the Samaritans, and it taught a lesson to the Jewish Christians. The lessons that taught to the Samaritans were this, not two churches, not two bodies of Christ, only one. And the way that God impressed that on was that they did not receive the Holy Spirit until Peter and John came down and prayed for them. It indicates there's only going to be one body of Christ, no division in the body of Christ. But the Jews need the lesson. They considered the Samaritans as dirt under their feet. And had they come in another way, they would have considered the Samaritans third or fourth class Christians and not had any fellowship with them. So when Peter and John went down, laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit and spake in tongues, that was an indication to, Philip, uh, to Peter and to John and to the Jewish Christians that there was equality in the body of Christ. God taught two lessons. Unity to the Samaritans, equality to the Jews. <clears throat> Unity. Only one body in Christ and equality to the Jewish Christians. The Samaritans, believers, are co-members and co-equal in the body of Christ. And God, at the very beginning, prevented a split in the body of Christ by doing it this way. Now, that's my conviction as to why God did it this unusual way. May I say that whether or not we can solve it, or whether or not that's right, and I believe it is, whether or not it is right, there's one thing that's sure. This is not the pattern or the mold today for receiving the Holy Spirit. It's the only time that it took place. When you say, what about Acts 19? Well, the people in Acts 19 were not saved. Here they were, and later on received the whole baptism of the Holy Spirit. Why? Well, for the reasons I've explained. But only one. So, there's no support for the idea that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a second work of grace. 
And that I am saved at this point, then later on, one year, two years, maybe five years, I receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and the proof of it is that I speak in an unknown language. That is not supported, I believe, by the New Testament. Now, having looked at that, let's go on to Acts chapter 8, verses 26 to 40. Acts chapter 8, verses 26 to 40. Here's Philip's ministry to the Ethiopian youth. Here's two men, Philip and this Ethiopian eunuch. Let's read Acts chapter 8 to get the basic facts in mind. Acts 8, verses 26 to 29. Acts chapter 8, verse 26. And the angel of the Lord said unto Philip, Rise, go toward the south, unto the way that goes down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is desert. And Philip said, Lord, I can't do that. I'm here in the revival. And we're having tremendous results. There'll be nothing down in the desert. I want to suggest to you that you leave me here for at least another year. No. What did say he did? He rose and went. The old man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, queen of Ethiopia, when uh, this is Casper Weinberger, the, uh, the, uh, this is the Casper Weinberger of Candace, who had the charge of all the treasure and had come to Jerusalem for the worship, was returning and sitting in his chair reading Isaiah the prophet. Now, here are these two men. One was Philip, the, the uh, deacon, and the other was this Ethiopian eunuch whose name is not given to us. He was from Ethiopia, which is comparable to our modern Nubia, which lies south of Egypt. And he was a eunuch. That was a common thing that if a man served in the castle, they often would castrate him. This man was an Ethiopian eunuch. He had been castrated. He served under Candace, the queen. In those days, there were queens who ruled this part of the country. And the reason is that they considered the king's deity, and it was beneath the king who was deity to get involved in governmental affairs. So the queen mother assumed the responsibility of running the government. And Candace was a title. What's the name was a title? Like president, or like Pharaoh, or like Caesar. Caesar is a title. You know from Caesar we get the word C-S-C-Z-A-R. And we get that, that uh, man that was head of Germany prior to World War I, Kaiser. That comes from Caesar. And they're all titles. And Candace was a title. She was a, and several queen mothers held this title. This man was the Secretary of the Treasury under Candace, under the Mother Queen. He was at the same time a Gentile proselyte to Judaism. And he had been up to Jerusalem, probably attending one of these. Now, what do you think he came in contact with when he was up in Jerusalem? What was boiling like a hot pot in Jerusalem at this time? This new movement. The movement of the Nazarenes. And these, these Nazarenes, these Christians, pointed back to the Old Testament scriptures and said that Jesus was the fulfillment 
of these Old Testament scriptures. This man had been up to Jerusalem. He had heard this. And on the way back, he had his Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, and he was reading the Septuagint, Isaiah chapter 53. Urges, but perplexed. And God took Philip out of a red-hot revival, brought him right down to this man way out yonder in the desert, and brought him one-on-one -on -one to witness to this man. Now, I'm not going to follow the outline. What I'd like to do is to look at this in terms of soul Here's a wonderful lesson on one-on-one -on -one witnessing for Christ. May I suggest to you, as God in the outline, six things. Six things. Here's a wonderful lesson on soul And I'd like to suggest to you six things. There are six elements in, in this uh, incident in which Philip leads this unit to save faith on Christ. Now, all of us can't go up to Samaria and preach to the crowds. But all of us can do what Philip did with his Ethiopian unit, one-on-one. -on -one. See? All, many few of us can get up and preach to great crowds like Philip did at Samaria. <clears throat> but there's not one of us that can't get involved one-on-one -on -one with somebody else as did Philip. God took Philip, put him down in the desert. <coughs> now, where's your work today? Down in the desert? Work's hard and tough, and you don't see many results? Well, God took this man and put him down in the desert. One-on-one -on -one witnessing. And this man went back and carried the gospel to Ethiopia, to that place from which he came, modern Nubia. And the church arose out of that. Six things. Number one, the spirit-directed servant. Number one, the spirit-directed servant. God gave two commands to Philip, and he obeyed them. The spirit-directed servant. Verse uh, 26, the <coughs> angel of the Lord said, Get up, Philip. Leave Samaria. Go down to the desert. Verse 27, didn't argue with him. He obeyed. He rose and went. Then in verse 29, when he got on down there and was walking next near the chariot, the Spirit of God said a second time, the Spirit said to Philip, go near to the chariot and join yourself to this chariot and to this man. And Philip said, well, the Lord, I haven't been to Bible college or seminary. I can't do this. See? Sometime later. No, do it now. 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 Strike while the iron is hot. Now. Philip obeyed. Went on down. And he got involved in, in, uh, in witnessing to this man, led him to saving faith in Christ. Let me suggest very quickly, all I can do is read them. Seven things. Seven things we observe in this man's witnessing. First, he was obedient. Obedient. is obedient to the command of Christ. Jesus had said, Acts 1.8, you shall be witnesses unto me. Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Philip was simple enough to obey the command of Christ. Secondly, he was sensitive to the Spirit's guidance. Sometimes the Spirit would say, no, 
No. The man's heart is not prepared. Sometimes he will say yes. He's prepared. And Philip was sensitive to the Spirit's guidance. He was obedient. Second, he was sensitive to the Spirit's guidance. Third, Philip was B-O-L-D. Bold. God gave to Philip a holy boldness. Now let me suggest something. There's a vast difference between brass and boldness. God doesn't use men who have brass. You know what I mean? But boldness. And Philip had a holy boldness that when God directed him to go up to the man to speak to him, Philip did and asked him a question. Got right into conversation. He didn't say what was the latest score with the Los Angeles Rams or the Jerusalem Saints. <laughs> he didn't get in the weather. He got right to the point. He knew his time was short. And he got right to the point God gave him boldness. Fourth, Philip got into the conversation by asking a question. Verse 30, Understandest thou that which thou readest? Understandest thou what thou readest? He got into it by asking him a key question. Now you know that's a good thing to do. You want to start a conversation with a man? Ask him a question. Dr. Chapin, the president of the seminary, which I attended, had a stock question that he used. He was a man who was a pagan, never met him before. He'd strike up a conversation, and I'd use this. I think it's good. He would say to the man, tell me, you know, somewhere down the line, the man would mention that he went to church. He would say to the man, let me ask you a question. What, how good do you think a man has to be to get to heaven? How good does a man have to be to get to heaven? Well, the guy, you know, average man would say we've got to be pretty good. Got to keep the Ten Commandments. Got to be pretty good. And you know, after he's exhausted all the options, he'll finally turn to you, or turn to Dr. Chaper, turn to you, and he'll say, well, how good does a man have to be? And the answer is, he has to be as good as Jesus Christ. If you're as good as Jesus, then you'll make it hell. If you're not, you won't. Well, that's impossible. Jesus is perfect. Absolutely right. Salvation is either absolutely impossible or absolutely right. Salvation is either absolutely impossible or absolutely easy. One of the two ways. I either say by works or by grace. But if I'm saved by works, I've got to keep them perfect. James 2 and Galatians chapter 3. If I keep all of them, says James, and offended one, then that's like a chain. I've fallen over a cliff, and they've over a chain, and it has a hundred links. How many links have to break in order for me to crash to the bottom? One, and I'm lost. If I want to keep the law, I keep it perfectly. Man says to me, I'll be saved by what I, you know, what I, I God has given you three standards. Take your pick. <clears throat> the Ten Commandments, the Servant on the Mount, or the Life of Jesus. Take your pick. Any one of three. But remember, God is not like ivory soul. 99, 44, 100%. God requires perfection. What does Romans 3, 23 say? 
for all had sinned and come short of the next door neighbor, of the elder, of the deacon. No, all the sin comes short of the, what is the glory of God? Jesus Christ. And if man's going to get to heaven, he's got to be as good as Jesus. Well, man says that's impossible. Nobody can. I can. That's the first step to get it. You know it's harder to get a man lost than it is to get him saved. Harder to get a man to admit his bankruptcy than to get him to brace sometimes Christ the Savior. I can't do it. I'm lost. That's the first step. And then when I trust the Lord Jesus, God gives to me the perfect righteousness of Christ. Perfect. Perfect. By which I can stand in God's presence. So I can sing with Count Zinzendorf. Jesus, thy blood and righteousness. By you ye are my glorious dread. Or with uh, Edward Perronet. What he shall call the trumpet sound, oh, then I shall in him be found. Dressed in his righteousness, Alone, alone, Paul went to stand before the throne. Paul said, Philippians chapter 3, I counted all that I ever did religiously as refuge, done, in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him. Not having mine own righteousness, which is by keeping the law, but that righteousness which is by faith in Christ. The moment I trusted Christ the Savior, God gave me a perfect righteousness. God sees me in Jesus and therefore sees me perfect. Now, my wife doesn't see me that way. <laughs> and my kids. But Jesus does. God does. He sees me in Christ and sees me perfect. <clears throat> and how good does a man have to be to get perfect? Or Barnhouse used to ask the question, if you should die right now, stand at the gate of heaven, and God should say, what right do you have to be in my heaven? What would you say? That's a good question. Uh, some of you uh, know Dr. James Kennedy. All those men here who are Presbyterians heard of James Kennedy. And a lot of us have, because he's much wider than the, than the Presbyterian Church's ministry. James Kennedy down at the great church down in Florida was an Arthur Murray dance instructor in the early 1950s down in Florida. And uh, one Saturday night he was in the dance hall late, 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 got home about 3 o'clock Sunday morning, went to bed. And uh, Sunday morning got up about uh, 9, 9.30, went on over, turned on that old radio that took those things about 30 seconds to warm up and finally get on. And after he turned it on, he jumped on back into bed. It was a little cold. And lo and behold, by the time he got back across the room and into the bed, the radio came on. And of all things, which he didn't want to hear, it was the voice of a preacher. That's the last thing he wanted to hear. So he jumped out and ran to the radio. But on the way, the man asked, it was Barnhouse. The man asked the question, if you should die right now, and stand at the gate of heaven, and God should say, what right do you have to be in my heaven? What would you say? It stopped uh, James Kennedy, cold in his tracks. Stop. Listen to him. 
the next day got down on his knees in his office and received Jesus Christ as his personal <laughs> Savior. Gave up his business, went to Columbia Seminary, graduated, got out in the, the ministry, was ineffective for five years and discovered that the reason he was, and the church wasn't going, was that he was not training his men personally to witness for Christ. So he gave up his visitation program, got one man, and said, will you go with me six months, and I'll show you how to lead men to Christ. And he did that. And then, after six months, those two got two more men. And out of that has come one of the great churches in the South that's impacted all over the nation. All out of the question, you should die. God should say what's right. You have to be in my head what you say. Philip asked the question. You understand what you mean. Then the fourth thing we notice about this man is that he knew his Bible. When the Ethiopian eunuch said, I'm reading Isaiah 53, the Bible says, Philip said, where is that chapter? <laughs> where is that book? No, Philip knew it. His conscience and away from his need of Christ. And you're going to have to learn how diplomatically to bring him back to the subject, which is Christ. He kept to his feet. Then seven, when the man got saved, he discipled the man. When the man got saved, he discipled him. He baptized the man. The man went on the way rejoicing. He discipled the man. Now, here's a great, great lesson, I think, to us in, in dealing one-on-one -on -one with people. May I suggest, he was obedient, he was sensitive to the Spirit, he was bold, he learned how to ask a key question, he knew his Bible, he kept to his theme, he called for a decision, and he discipled the man. Now, second, number two. Number two. Now, we're going today to 9.30, see? <laughs> now, we're going to stop at 7.30. All right, number two. Number two. Not only was there a spirit-directed man, not only was there a spirit-directed servant, but number two, there was a spirit-prepared soul. There was also a spirit-prepared soul. God prepared this man for Philip's testimony. He was a proselyte. He knew the Old Testament. He had a Septuagint Old Testament. He had been up to Jerusalem. And up there he had heard about the Lord Jesus, and he was perplexed about it. And he was perplexed about these prophetic passages. And he was earnest, sincere, and he was looking, looking, looking. And his soul was all prepared. See, God doesn't have everybody prepared. That's why we need to depend upon the Holy Spirit. And you've been witnessing to a man, and you know you've reached a dead end, and there won't be much, much use in going beyond that because he's, he's closed the gospel. The Bible says, answer a fool according to his folly. And sometimes, witnessing, you'll, you'll realize that that man's heart's not prepared. Now, I think you're obligated to go ahead and bear testimony, but recognize by the guidance of the Holy Spirit, that man's heart's not prepared. On the other hand, you get with the man and you know that he's, can I say it properly, through, ready to be reaped. Harvest, John 4, ready to be reaped. 
And God prepared not only Philip, the, te the evangelist, but also prepared this Ethiopian eunuch for <coughs> Philip's ministry. God has this man all ready. When you study the book of Acts, you find a number of When, when uh, Paul preached out on the bank in Philippi, there was a woman whose heart God had prepared. Her name was Lydia. She was a businesswoman. Her heart was all ready. Paul preached. She trusted Christ. Then God saw to it that <clears throat> Paul and Barnabas got thrown in jail. And instead of nursing a grudge against God and indulging in self-martyrdom, Paul the Barnabas sang songs. And here was a pagan jailer <laughs> whose heart was burdened about his sin. And these then sang songs and sang hymns and, and witnessed. And when that earthquake took place, the man was all ready. He said, Sir, what must I do to be saved? Now, you know if a man asks you that question earnestly, you're ready. <laughs> you better have your gun primed then. Sir, what must I do to be saved? And Paul said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. He was already not fair to But witnessing, an like this. Man consents when he's preaching. Whether or not God has prepared heart, you can sense that. When you get witnessing, you can sense whether or not God has prepared the heart. Now, if he has it, I don't think we ought to stop. I think we ought to bear testimony. But recognize that I'm not going to get the first phase unless the Holy Spirit's on the other end preparing the man's heart. See, I get to his ear. But I can't get to his heart, his will. So many miles from the ear to the will. So many miles from the ear to the heart. I can get to the ear. Only God can get to the heart. That's why I need to pray that God will prepare hearts. And here was a prepared man for Philip's ministry. All right, number three. Third thing was a Christ-centered message. Verses 31 to 35. Christ-centered message. Uh, the man was reading from Isaiah chapter 53. And that's a great passage, and I hope to save myself about 20 minutes to speak on Isaiah 53, but I'm not. Years and years ago, over 20 years ago, while I was here, I used to preach out on the other side of uh, Cardinal, and I preached a series of five messages on Isaiah 52, verse 13, to Isaiah 53, 12. There are five stanzas in that passage, five of them. The greatest messianic prophecy of Christ's death is Isaiah 53. No passage is quoted more in the New Testament on Jesus' death than Isaiah 53. And uh, probably the clearest passage of the nature of Christ's death is found in Isaiah 53. Some people, I'm asked sometimes, what is the best word to describe the death of Jesus? What is the best word to describe the death of Jesus? How about atonement? Well, that's not bad. 
But if I had selection, I would say three words. Penal, vicarious, satisfaction. And I, I speak on this about once a year on the radio. What is the nature of Jesus' death? Penal. The death he suffered, he suffered as a penalty for sin. He bore the curse of the law. He bore the penal infraction of God's law. I'm under God's judgment. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned each one to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him what? The penal consequences of our sin. The guilt of our sin. I am Jesus Christ went to the cross. He bore the curse of the law, Galatians 3. And the curse of the law is the penal <clears throat> consequence of violating the law. I get out in the interstate, travel 80 miles an hour, and the state police pick me up two miles for every mile over, two dollars for every mile over. Then, and I'm 25 miles over the speed limit, that's $50. <clears throat> what is that $50? That's the curse of the law. That's the penal consequence. And Jesus bore that penal consequence. The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity. Secondly, vicarious. Vicarious. Isaiah 53, verse 5. Isaiah 50. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquity, vicarious in my place. Penal, vicarious, one more word. Satisfaction. The death of Jesus satisfied the claims of heaven against me. The death of Jesus satisfied the justice of God. Isaiah 53, verse 11. He shall see, are you listening? Great birth, tremendous birth. He shall see the travail, the agony of the soul of Jesus upon the cross. And shall be satisfied. Penal, vicarious, satisfaction. And Philip preached from Isaiah chapter 53. It was a Christ-centered message. He preached it. Philip preached. In fact, Philip did three things when he preached. And let me say them quickly. When Philip preached, he did three things. Now, will you look here? Three things. I think you're falling asleep. That's why I'm saying <laughs> Philip did three things. <laughs> Philip did three things. And I, when you preach, you do this. And when you're witnessing, number one, Philip explained the scripture. The man asked him, what does this mean? So Philip said, well, listen, I, let me go and ask my preacher what that means. <clears throat> no, no. Philip explained the scripture because he studied it. The Bible says, 1 Peter 3.15, Sanctify the Lord God in your heart and be ready at any time to give a reason for the hope that lies within you. Be ready at any time. It's a great tragedy, and I see it down here in the Bible Belt, it's a great tragedy that a man can be in the church for 25 years and be a Christian for 25 years and probably be truly saved. And yet if he were asked 
to talk to a man about his soul and explain to him the way of salvation, he would have to say, I don't think I can do it. I say, that's a tragedy, but it's true. It's true. It's a tragedy, but it's true. The men who've been in the church for years couldn't sit down with a lost sinner and explain to him how to be saved. Bishop John Taylor Smith was the chaplain of the British Army in World War I. He was a great evangelical, a great gospel preacher. He loved to preach on the new birth. He was the chief of chaplains. And every young aspiring chaplain that wanted to enter into the chaplaincy in the British Army in World War I was interrogated by Bishop John Taylor Smith. And Bishop Smith would look at his uh, portfolio before the young fellow had come in, examine it. Everything was in order. He called the young man in. Sit down. He wanted to know one more thing. Everything else was in order. Academically, so on. Everything else was in order. Wanted to know one more thing. Bishop Taylor Smith said to the young, young man, sit down. Sit down. He said, I want to ask you one question. I want to ask you to do one thing. I am an English soldier. I'm over yonder in Germany, France. I'm on the front line. I've been mortally wounded. I have 10 minutes to die. I'm not a Christian. I'm not saved. I want to be saved. I want to be a Christian. I want to go to heaven. But I've only got 10 minutes to live. Bishop Taylor Smith pulled that watch out of his pocket, lay it on the desk right in front of the seat, now, I'm not being facetious. He'd say, young man, I got 10 minutes to live. I want you to tell me in 10 minutes how I can be right with God, how I can be saved, how I can be sure that my soul is prepared to go. If the young man could do that 10 minutes and do it clearly, then he was accepted in the chaplaincy. If he couldn't, no matter what his academic credentials were, he couldn't, he was rejected. Could you do that? You had 10 minutes. Could you tell a man how to be saved? Or would you be all thumbs? Well, if you can't, then what you ought to do is to go over to the, the bookstore and get a little, a little tract that helps you to tell a man how to do that. And then take a piece of paper tonight and write it down. Write your testimony down of how you Don't give your personal testimony until you tell what the Bible says. See, witnessing for Christ involves two things. It involves telling them what Jesus did for them, and secondly, what Jesus means to me. And the second is no good without the first. First of all, I've got to tell men what Christ did for me at the cross, how he died in my place, and is ready and willing to save me if I'll trust him. Then secondly, what Christ means to me. Now, if you can't do that, go home and get a piece of paper out and write it down in simple terms and learn how to, and then do it, do it, do it. Ask God to open the door today and to give you a chance to do it. And I'm going to be praying that you'll fall in your faith. No, I don't mean that. But we're all thumbs. We're all thumbs. None of us knows all the answers. But it'll never be done unless we get out and do it. And most of us, the problem is we just never get started 
in doing it. And Philip did. God right And let me see something else. <clears throat> the longer I go around the barn and talk about the weather and talk about sport, the harder it's going to be to get to the subject. Get the subject soon. Then it's easier. And you can do that by learning to use a good question. So Philip explained the scripture. With this, I'm going to have to quit. We'll just pick up this next time. Look here, Philip did three things, three things, and that's what's involved in preaching, and that's what's involved in soul Philip did three things. Number one, he explained the scripture. Number one, he explained the Bible. He explained to the man what Isaiah 53 meant, what it was all about. Secondly, <clears throat> Philip focused and, and preached Christ. Old Testament focuses on Christ. Philip didn't get sidetracked. Philip made Christ the main issue, not the mode of baptism, not the antichrist, not the problems with criticism of Isaiah 53. Philip preached Christ. That's what the man needed, and that's what he preached. He focused on Christ. And then, and, and that's what we have to do. What shall I do with Jesus was called the Christ? Philip focused on Christ. Third, he called the man to a decision. What are you going to do? Did three things. He explained the scripture. He focused on Christ. Preached Christ. Not a church. Not a denomination. Not baptism. He made Jesus Christ the issue. Third, he called for a decision. The man responded, believed on Christ, and asked to be baptized as an evidence for that. Now we'll pick up at that point next time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study this great path. Help us today, all of us, to be filled. We all can't go down to Samaria and preach in some great revival, but we can all go down to the desert and witness to one man. Some of us are going to go out to the desert when we leave this place. Mid-South Bible College, at least it appears to be, may be a wonderful oasis. Here we're with men of like precious faith. Here we can share the gospel of those who have trusted Christ. But after we leave at 8 or 8.30 or 8.45, we're going to go out to the desert, down to the world, where people don't care about Christ, they may use his name in vain. They despise the Lord Jesus. They're not interested in the gospel. But we know, oh God, that underneath that tough exterior, there's a heart that's burdened with the guilt of sin and that's hungry for God. And oh God, we pray that as we go down to our desert today, thou wilt prepare the heart some people down at work, that thou give us the boldness and the earnestness and the wisdom and the tact and that holy boldness to move on in. To ask about how is it with your soul? If you should die, you ready to meet God. How good does a man need to be in heaven? And then give us the boldness, wisdom, and the knowledge of the Bible to move in and to witness for Christ and to challenge that man to receive the Lord Jesus. 
Oh God, we pray that today, today, we'll each make an opportunity to open the door and to bear witness for Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.